Hey everyone, I'm Lee Jen along with Nathan Bashez. Hello. And this is Means of Creation, a show where we deep dive into the passion economy and the future of work. This show is brought to you by Every, a writer collective that's focused on business. So today we are having a really interesting conversation with Gabby Dizon, who is one of my portfolio company's CEOs. He's the co-founder of Yield Guild Games, which is a play-to-earn gaming guild in the metaverse. So the metaverse and the topic of play-to-earn gaming have been in the news a lot lately, but there are emerging trends that not a lot of people have heard about. I, for one, was kind of astonished to hear just the rate of growth of these things, partially because just anything growing fast is interesting, but also because it's kind of like the childhood dream to get paid for playing a video game. It's very interesting how crypto incentives can make something like that actually work. And you know, it doesn't, the longevity of it hasn't been proven yet, but it's certainly interesting to see kind of like what the the start that it's off to. Yes, it's incredible. I remember the first time that I ever met Gabby. I was also astonished and it blew my mind that people were playing video games for a living. Like we often joke about that with respect to Twitch streamers or people who are live streaming or esports players on the internet. But I think play to earn takes it one step further where these there are entirely virtual economies in the form of these blockchain-based games where players are able to actually earn income just by playing the video game and earning in-game assets that they can then take out of the game and trade on exchanges. It's a super fascinating phenomenon. Totally. We're not talking about like tournament winnings or sponsorships or anything. This is just like directly you earn tokens from a game that you can exchange for Ethereum or USD or whatever you want. Exactly. Yes. And in many countries around the world, people are leveraging these play to earn games to earn more income than they would actually be able to earn from local minimum wage jobs, which is really incredible. So Gabby anyways, has been in the gaming industry for a really long time and is one of the earliest members of the blockchain-based game developer community. So in this conversation, we talk about the metaverse, we talk about how he got into the space, his NFT collections, the psychology powering in-game economies, and, and much more. And we hope that you really enjoy it. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us today. Huge fan of every, so I'm super happy to be here. Thank you. I wanted to first kick off with just level setting for listeners in the audience who may not be as into crypto as you are. What are blockchain-based games and why are they important and interesting? Sure. So there have been a lot of games that have uh, basically very vibrant in-game economies. Games RuneScape, World of Warcraft, where people can buy and sell and trade the items that they earn in-game. But none of these have been really permitted to kind of cash out and turn your items inside the game into real money. It's happened before, of course, but they've always been kind of gray market against terms of service. And with blockchain-based games that use NFTs, they're basically putting the economy of these games on the blockchain, which means instead of in-game currency, they may be using some form of cryptocurrency and some assets in the game may be NFTs. And what's special about that is that when you buy an item inside the game, it's basically in your wallet. It may be priced in something like Ether or USD. And then there's usually a marketplace where you can freely buy and sell them to any other player in the game. So that means that if you own a piece of land inside the game, then you really own it. I can sell it anytime. And this means that I can basically make a living inside these video games. Yeah, and it's it's really 
interesting in contrast with traditional games where they're closed ecosystems. And if you own an item, you can't take that with you to anywhere outside of the game. And like maybe just an in-game element of scarcity, but that is really dependent on the developer of that game itself. Whereas in blockchain-based games, there's portability of these assets because they exist on the blockchain. And so they belong to you as the owner. They're associated with your account, with your keys, and you can take them to other games or you can sell them on exchanges. And that's the mechanism driving the economy behind how people are actually making money through the games. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We call these uh, player-owned economies. And it's a very different mindset where if you're a typical game developer, such as an Activision, EA, you just want to sell a lot of stuff directly to your player base. And with player-owned economies, you're first selling your items to the players, but then the players transact among themselves. So you're acting more like... It's your like you have your own theme park or you have your own country and you're kind of managing your own little GDP inside the game. That's how I think about it. I'm so curious to hear how items are there standards basically like where if I have some object or whatever that works and and performs certain actions in a game that I could take it into another game and that game would be able to like read hey this is you know a digital thing that does this it has this effect in the world whatever like or is it more like cosmetic like skins and outfits and stuff like that yeah basically what are the standards that allow games to sort of be interoperable almost at this layer of like things that could exist within the various game worlds that are different worlds yeah so on ethereum there's the non-fungible token standard or the erc721 standard and think of the blockchain as a global database that any application can read so if i have an item that i bought any game can read your wallet and they say you know if you have this item then i can represent it as something inside a game so for example i may have Uh, a piece of clothing or I may have an avatar and it's still up to each game to decide how they're represented in their worlds but it just means that the the item ownership itself is is with you the player totally but I guess like I'm curious like are games like developing sort of alliances where it's like oh we'll be cross compatible with the items that are generated or spawned in our game and then someone could own and then now they own it it's their nft and they could take it to my to my game like yeah what are the examples of like interoperable things basically it's still super early but we're starting to see a lot of crossovers where for example i have a cryptopunk avatar which is more of a collectible than an actual game item but now people are finding ways for these uh, CryptoPunks, for example, where you can walk around them in Decentraland or in the Sandbox. I think it's still super early when it comes to interoperability. We haven't seen, I guess, really good use cases yet. But I expect these to really improve a lot, I guess, as the worlds mature and people want to draw users from other games to their own game. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I could imagine if there's like one big game that supports a certain standard of like, here's how these items work or whatever, and here's what we encode into our nft of like representing what the item actually is then other games would have an incentive to read from that and support basically that item if it's like oh a bunch of people have these types of things we want to support that yeah makes total sense i i want to continue to peel back the various layers of the onion here and and progress us towards um which is our something that is shared between us as a goal which is to sort of advance economic opportunity so i want to continue um pushing on that. And so 
now that we've sort of level set on what are blockchain-based games, like where does Yield Guild games come in? What are the challenges of actually getting players into these economies to participate and to earn money? And like, how did you see this opportunity to start Yield Guild games? And can you say more about it? Sure. So I, I've been playing Axie Infinity since I would say late 2018. So I've been part of the player community. And what's been great about that game specifically is that they really lean on their community like no other game has ever done. And it, it happens that like a lot of the interesting solutions that come out of the game actually come from the player community uh, themselves. And that is kind of related to how Yield Guild started. So last year in the early part of the lockdown, there's a lot of uncertainty then. A lot of people were unemployed, especially in my country, in the Philippines. And what happened was that some people, just they were locked down at home. They didn't have any income, running out of food, getting really desperate to, to look, find a way to make money. And they started finding Axie Infinity online. And these people weren't crypto natives. They were basically gamers from the rural Philippines who basically needed to find a way to make money. And they found a game. They downloaded a crypto wallet. They downloaded the game and then um, started playing. And they realized that they could actually make more money playing Axie Infinity than the jobs they were laid off from. So for context, the minimum wage here in the Philippines is like 200 to $250 a month. And people were earning somewhere between three to $500 a month playing this game, basically two to four hours a day. And people started posting on Facebook. I started earning this much playing this game. A lot of people started coming in. But of course, to play the game and start earning money, you need money because you need to buy the NFT assets. So it's not like you can come in for free. So I was selling uh, the axes, the NFTs to a lot of the players coming in. If they couldn't afford it, I would basically just give it to them and say, hey, pay me back uh, when you can afford it. And to my surprise, like two, three weeks later, they'd pay me back and they've already paid down the cost of the teams um, that they borrowed from me through playing the game. And that was how Yield Guild started. I, I was just seeing so much activity coming in. And then we thought of like, why don't we set up a scalable way to buy and breed these axes? Because you can breed them and create new ones and then lend them out to players who want to basically come into the economic opportunities of Axie Infinity, but can't afford the upfront cost. And just some quick added context here for anyone who's not familiar with Axie Infinity. It's basically a game where you engage in battles with these teams that are comprised of like cute digital pets. And these cute digital pets are called Axies. They're NFTs that you can purchase on the open marketplace. And by winning these battles, you earn this in-game item, which is also an NFT called a small love potion or SLP. And this SLP can be sold and purchase and bought on exchanges. And that's how people are earning income. They're playing these battles in Axie Infinity, they're earning SLP, and then they're selling the SLP. And so a few years ago, in the gig economy, there was this phenomenon of various companies that were renting assets to potential gig workers. So for instance, if you wanted to be an Uber driver or a Lyft driver, you needed to have a car and some people don't have cars. And so there were companies springing up that were renting out cars to prospective drivers and doing some sort of rev share model. Think of Yield Guild as kind of like the digital metaverse version of those companies in the sense that they're lending axes to prospective players such that they can actually participate and play the game and start earning income. And the way that it's structured is that 
there's basically a revenue share component, right, Gabby? Can you say more about how the economics work? Yeah, sure. So we lend them the axes and we call these players scholars. They're the benefit of a scholarship program, which is the lending program that lends out these NFTs to players. And the split is as follows. The scholars or the players get 70% of the SLP that they generate. Their community manager, so the manager is the one that is in charge of recruiting, training these people, kind of doing these sub-communities. The manager earns 20% and us as the guild, we get 10%. And what we do is that we kind of automate this whole structure of bringing people teams. We have smart contracts that govern the rev share split, for example. Um, And yeah, so we have community managers around Philippines, Indonesia, in Brazil, Mm -hmm. in uh, Venezuela, and yeah, just springing up in different countries around the world. It's amazing. Could you share some high-level traction numbers around Yield Guild or Axie or Play to Earn in general? Because I think there's significant scale that is surprising to a lot of folks who aren't in this ecosystem. Yeah, so for Yield Guild, we have around 2,700 players that are playing Axie Infinity, and they're already generating over $100,000 of SLP every single day. And 70% of that goes back to the player. So, and we're, we're really going to onboard as many players as we can. And it's actually really starting to disrupt the labor market where as more people invest into the Axie ecosystem, the price of SLP actually starts going up. And now with playing SLP as a player, as a scholar for a month, you're actually earning maybe two to three times more salary than a fresh graduate of basically an entry-level job it's starting to get really nuts what does slp do in the game like where who who's buying it basically and why yeah that's a great question so slp is uh, generated whenever you battle and then you win so it's like a game points basically that that you earn and you have to use it you have to consume it as a cost if you breed two axes and create a new one and if i come in as a player i need three axes to start playing the game and earning money which means there are these types of players in axie infinity called axie breeders whose job it is to basically breed axes make new ones and then sell them to incoming new players. So these are the ones buying SLP and one, we're actually one of the bias, largest buyers of SLP in the game as well. Gotcha. So if you want to enter the game, basically you need to buy uh, SLP. That's the basis of where the demand is coming from. That's that's the revenue that's causing it to be sustainable for these people to be playing the game for money. And then that's also for you, the reason why uh, it works to loan someone one is because you buy, you've got the upfront sort of investment and then uh, you loan it to the player or the scholar, and then they gradually earn it over time, earn it back. Do they end up owning it after a while where they buy it out from you? Or do you own it and then it's just like a revenue share into perpetuity? Yeah, it's a perpetual revenue share. We want the scholars to graduate from our program. And that means that they earn enough money so that they can buy their own axes and basically take 100% share. They stay within our community after that because the community is so supportive. And then the slot that they leave basically goes to somewhere else. And we have thousands of people in our wait list waiting to come in. And yeah, it's just a great community where you you actually want to propel people forward. The economic upward mobility is something that's designed as part of the system. 
Gotcha. I remember you had mentioned something really powerful to me a while ago, which is that having these scholars come into Yield Guild and starting to play, it jumpstarts this really powerful cycle of entrepreneurship because they are able to earn more income than they would be able to through a local job. And then they take that income, they reinvest it into their own assets, whether that's like investing in crypto or like purchasing their own axes that they can then play with, or maybe starting to breed those axes or starting their own scholarship program and and training other scholars to start earning income. So it basically starts this really powerful, positive flywheel um, for these players who can then kind of like break the cycle of poverty. It's a network effect of a upward mobility that honestly I've never seen before in my life like especially even in crypto right like a lot of people have made a lot of money in crypto but you basically need to have some money to get started and here you're using your time and your skill and I think a lot of us gamers have gotten yelled at by our parents for just playing so much and we've always thought it had no economic value but actually it's not true it's just that the economic value of gaming wasn't shared with the players. And now we're seeing how powerful that economic value could be. And not only is it uplifting the lives of the players, but they're also able to uplift the lives of people around them as well. It's interesting because when you say that it's not true that the economic value just wasn't shared with the players, I probably just don't understand enough about it. But to me, it's like when I was playing a game on you know Nintendo 64 when I was a kid, I really don't think that, I mean, maybe some skills and stuff would be like good for me, but there wasn't the same kind at all of economic value that's being created now by the blockchain-based games where there's a system where there's a scarce resource that only gets created through player activity. And when you, you, through your activity, create that resource, then it's something that other people want in order to get into the game. And so then it's something that you can exchange for... I guess Ethereum is usually what people, how does, what do people, okay. So then you exchange it for Ethereum. And anyway, it's like, imagine if the Nintendo 64, like whatever GoldenEye game that I was playing, it was like, in order to play GoldenEye, you had to buy a gun. In order to get a gun, you had to like, you know, either just buy it with Ethereum or maybe, you know, anyway, it's interesting to think that you can just sort of create that out of thin air. Like you can create this digital scarcity, which is obviously the whole point of blockchains, but still it's, it's interesting to think about it as applied to games. Yeah, it's been happening for over 20 years with games like um, Ultima Online, World of Warcraft, RuneScape, uh, most popularly EverQuest. Um, yeah, but it's never really reached the point where you could legally change those items for cash, right? It's always been gray market or against terms of service. But yeah, it, it's been happening for a long time in these games as well. I think probing into the economics and how you can create like an economy essentially from nothing is a mm-hmm. really interesting topic. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts there, Gabby, on like what sustains the price of SLP? Is this like a form of redistribution from wealthier countries to poorer countries? Like what keeps this economy running? There's this concept we have called player liquidity. So, I mean, liquidity is a concept that people understand in crypto, but in anything that has a lot of users, be they like social networks or multiplayer games, player liquidity is uh, very important. So it's basically the humans that decide to say, like, I choose to spend my time inside your application. And as we've seen in Facebook, where people are creating content and putting it online, um, these people aren't really compensated for it. And here, the time you choose 
to spend inside the game and creating this precious resource, SLP, that gets used as a ingredient for creating new axes, you're basically being compensated for it like on market rates, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in the world. And so anyone who basically in a tiny village in, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, has the same amount of economic opportunity inside this game as someone who is living in America, for example. Would you say that Axie Infinity is kind of the modern version of a workers cooperative where as a player, you are essentially earning a membership stake, like an ownership stake in the actual game itself, where SLP it represents kind of like upside and equity in the game itself. So if you're able to earn more SLP and the price of SLP appreciates, you benefit from that in the same way that like in a workers co-op, you have membership interests and if the business does well, you get exposure to that upside. Do you think that's an apt comparison? The games and virtual worlds that have blockchain-based economies, I see them as their own little digital countries. So Axie itself, it has its own GDP, and that GDP is based on the activity of people playing, playing the game, buying and selling stuff in the game, interacting with each other. So its own little digital country. And what Yield Guild is, is the workers' cooperative because we are basically buying and investing in all of these assets and telling our our player base like hey here you can use them we'll do an equitable uh, revenue share with you you can cash that out and uh, yeah we'll just keep on expanding these opportunities so that more people can have access to them so that they can have access to these digital countries because to get to the metaverse and start earning you you need a passport you need the nft to get started right and not everyone can afford that I think of it as like akin to if we could all become owners in Facebook or TikTok just by using the product, by using the service and by contributing to it. What if we could earn shares in those companies just by being a user and and making valuable contributions? Like I think of that as essentially what is happening in Axie Infinity. The comparison I make is that what if the drivers of Uber got Uber uh, equity when they were starting out, then a lot of them would be, yeah, would be much better off right now, right? Absolutely. I'm curious, what are, like, is this something that is, will exist across lots of games? Because to me, like, the demand for probably entry into new games generally in the future is probably relatively stable, but any specific game people might get tired of. I'm curious if you see that as a big risk of like, what if there's less demand to get into this game and therefore less demand for SLP? Yeah, so at Yield Guild, we have already invested in 10 different games. So for example, we have uh, NFT cars in Formula One Delta Time. We have land in League of Kingdoms and Sandbox. We have uh, ships in Star Atlas. So yeah, we definitely think people would want to buy different games. And the guild itself, think of it as the kind of economic cooperative that spans all of these different worlds in the metaverse. So if you want to go into space, like we have some ships to lend you. If you want to if you know, battle some cute pets, we have some axes to lend you. If you want to play a strategy game and till some land, basically, we have, a, we have a game for you. So yeah, that's how we think about it. We want to be in every game that has an economic component that could benefit our players. 
Mm-hmm. And is the commonality that dr- like the scarcity that drives the the sort of ability to compensate people for playing just that you play the game and there and the better you do in the game, the more you earn some resource that people want to buy because you have to buy it in order to get into the game. Generally, yes, like each game has somewhat different mechanics, so it doesn't work exactly the same from game to game. But I guess the the, the common thing they have is that their economies are all on the blockchain, which means there's an element of scarcity and there's an element of having player-owned economies in them. Okay, so all of this sounds really amazing for players. Like, if you're a player, you can now earn through playing these blockchain-based games. You can participate in the value that's you know that has historically been accruing to game developers and gaming companies. I also want to get your thoughts on how does this impact game developers? Like why should game developers consider adopting a play to earn model versus being, you know, a traditional game developer that controls all of their in-game assets in like a centralized database? Yeah. Like what are the pros and what are the cons? I've been hearing that question from developers for the last three years. So, so I'm glad you really brought it up. I liken it to uh, the point in time when, Amazon shifted from mostly selling items directly to enabling their third-party marketplace. And for game developers, this is such a huge shift in mindset because you're basically saying, like, I'm going from like making 100% of what I'm selling minus the uh, platform fees, the 30% of Apple and Google, for example. And now I'm, I'm doing a 4.25% cut, which is the case of Axie or so, to all the things that players are selling. So uh, for a lot of developers, that is quite a kind of shift in mindset to make, wherein why would I enable something where I'm taking a less than 5% cut if I can make everything directly? But as we've seen with Axie, just the growth of community-based player, uh, player, uh, player-driven player economies, like the growth they've had in uh, the last, I would say, six weeks or so is absolutely crazy. So with a game that's not available on the iOS App Store or the Google Play Store, um, DAU is now over 350000 and people are spending somewhere between fifteen to twenty dollars in the marketplace every single day. So the four point twenty five percent marketplace fee for June um, that amounted to I think over eight million dollars. And in the first six days of July, they made eight million dollars all over again. So that's and and again, this is with zero paid user acquisition. They haven't paid a dime to Facebook or a Google. So I think. This is one glimpse at what the world past the the walled gardens that the iOS App Store, Google Play, the big platforms are creating. It's just a glimpse of what happens when you give that play uh, th- that power and you give give over uh, much of your economy to your actual user base. Yeah, it's like the slice of the pie that the team takes for itself is smaller than it was before, but the pie can be much bigger because everyone in the ecosystem has more skin in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And the players have basically taken on the role of marketing, user acquisition, investing in assets in the game. The the community is doing all of that for the developers. I think this is really, really significant. And I just want to like create a verbal exclamation point here. (laughs) Like, I I think this is like a, a huge shift in platform and network design that I think is going to pervade out to a lot of labor marketplaces. And when I say labor marketplaces, I mean, basically any platform in which there's like multiple 
segments of users, creators, like people who are building on top of platforms platforms and contributing value to it. Right now, that value gets distributed according to whatever rules the platform decides. And inevitably, a lot of platforms end up taking the lion's share of that value. But I think in the future, we're going to see a world in which platform founders and and builders end up deciding to take less of the economics for themselves and distributing it out to their participants, the people who are actually like creating the value on those networks, and in turn, creating networks and services that are much bigger than their centralized counterparts. Like, I think the future of social networking is going in that direction. I think the future of labor marketplaces is going in that direction. And I just want to like iterate how massive of a shift this is. Everyone nods in agreement. <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've stunned everyone into silence. There's nothing else to say. <laughs> yeah, no. It, it's funny because I, I also think it's bigger than it's bigger than blockchain. I think that blockchain is a really important piece of it, but just the idea that you know platform participants should have more control over the platform and have more of the upside from the platform is something that we see evidenced in the behavior of pretty much any platform now. Like, yeah. They're all doing it in one way or another. And I think blockchain stuff is a really important tool. But it's also undeniably just a broader shift. Yes. And I think I would I would push back on it not just being about blockchain because I think the blockchain is like a very unique and powerful enabler of this shift. Because I think this kind of enabling participants to become stakeholders dynamic, it's near impossible to achieve in the traditional equity system. It's, it's near impossible to mm. distribute equity at the scale that, you know, Axie has done through tokens. Like what you can do with tokens. Yeah, because equity is, is analog, right? Yes. And equity is, you know, for private companies, you're restricted to 2,000 equity holders. 2,000. Like, and, and the platforms we're talking about today, they're world scale. They have millions of participants on them. There's just no way to distribute equity to each of those millions of people, whereas you can distribute tokens to each of them super seamlessly at very low cost, instantaneously, rewarding them each proportionally to the value they've contributed. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so this is now a a crypto podcast. (laughs) But that's that's very relevant to to my experience as a game developer because we we are an independent game developer doing mobile games and we were living in a world where, you know, the the ones that had the most user acquisition budget for Facebook and Google, they were the ones that could dominate the app stores. And for us as uh, basically independent developers, it was really hard to make a living just making the games that we wanted to make. And that's what uh, drove me to crypto in the first place. I was at first looking for a technology that would disrupt the game industry and kind of level the playing field all over again. But what I found during my time in the crypto space was that not only would it level the playing field, it will actually level the playing field so that the people who were independent, not only creators as individual people, but even these teams that wanted to create things like indie games together, there was actually a place for them in this world. And yeah, that's the most meaningful part to me. Okay, this is a little bit of a tangent, but Nathan and I have been writing about the App Store for the past few months, weeks, and bringing attention to the fact that the App Store, through taking a 30% cut um, of all transactions, is arguably engaging in rent-seeking behavior. 
there are no other alternatives beyond in-app purchases if you're an app developer selling digital goods through a mobile app. And so you have no recourse but to pay the 30% fee. And, you know, we've been talking about like, what could Apple do that makes it more creator and developer friendly? It could potentially lower the stake rate. It could allow other ways to process payments beyond in-app purchases. How do you think about this issue? Do you think that people should just like not build on these centralized platforms and should just build on the internet and, and like use crypto and build on more of an open platform? Like, is this a futile exercise to try and get Apple to be more creator friendly and, and we should just focus our efforts on what comes next? Yeah. So one of the criticisms of, uh, I guess, the applications that are being made in crypto now is that it's very hard to get any sort of, uh, I would say, mass adoption because like you, you'd have to play ball with Apple and Google and they would never really do so. But what Axie has shown where it has gone from 15,000 DAU in January to around 350,000 now without an app store presence, having to install two wallets, um, two crypto wallets. So the UX onboarding is actually incredibly hard, but the benefit they give is so massive that people are basically lining up so that they can download and participate in the economy behind the game. And I think this is a peek at uh, where the future lies. If if you're building something that gives such a massive benefit to people, then at the start, they're willing to forego a lot of those kind of UX onboarding that um, these uh, these platforms with great distribution give you, but basically lock you into their economics. And I think it's a futile exercise to really just wait for Apple or Google to Facebook to be to be more individual or creator friendly because they have the lock in. And at the end of the day, it's them that get to decide pretty much unilaterally what kind of share they want to give to the people in their ecosystem. I feel like that that is a really important general principle of like the more invested, the more important something is to you, the bigger upside there is on the other end, the more you're willing to go through pain to <laughs> kind of like get to that experience in that place. And, and I do think it's really good for startups to kind of differentiate on, provide a ton of value so much so that you don't have to rely on like a frictionless app store and app payment type system in order to get people to want to buy in to your ecosystem. What you just said does raise a question for me that I'm really curious about though, which is when you said people are lining up to get in this game, is the main reason because they just really want to play the game or because they think they'll make money off of the game? I don't think you can separate the two. If the game were not fun, it would never reach this kind of success. If you were just like mindlessly clicking on something, the game is actually incredibly deep and there is a learning curve to getting better in the game that make people stay. And, you know, the, the game developers have said that their 30-day retention rate is at 90%. And uh, most good games have a 30-day retention of 10%. So I don't care if you think the game is fun or not. If it has a 30, 90% 30-day retention, like people are doing something right. The developers are doing something right, right? I, I also want to talk about, like, play-to-earn games in the context of kind of how it changes the labor marketplace and perhaps gives more leverage over to the individual workers. Um, this is a theme that I've sort of written about before with regards to like separating income from employment and how we're now seeing the unbundling of like work and being able to earn income from being a traditional employee. And then I've also written about the topic of creating a creator middle class because right now there's 
a ton of power laws that dominate the creator economy. Can you say more about how um, play to earn sort of intersects with those different themes? So how I see the metaverse forming generally these games in virtual worlds that have blockchain based economies is that there are many different types of jobs that people can play within these worlds that are outside the core team of developers that are uh, that are making these games. So, for example, you can be a player, as in the case of Axie Infinity. You can be a breeder. You can be a landholder. Or in other games, you might be an avatar designer. I may create levels inside a game. I may be creating digital fashion. And none of these are basically salary jobs. All of these are, I guess, what you would call gig jobs in uh, in in the online offline world, right? But in these games, in the metaverse, these are jobs that you can do that has some form of economic value. If someone is willing to buy the avatar or the piece of clothing you made, then you can make money from it. And I think that's really powerful because now you have all of these different types of gigs inside the metaverse that people who have these unique skills can uh, can fulfill and it means that i don't actually have to find a job that gives me a 95 if i'm really good at making digital avatars if i'm really good at making digital clothing if i can make really nice 3d cars that i can sell in inside a game then i can do that and that really just opens up the that kind of universe of possibilities for what it means to be a creator and what what type of work I can create and get paid for. What are potential downsides of that? In this world without employment, formal employment, I could imagine that these workers, even though they can specialize and earn in ways that they couldn't before, maybe there's also a loss of um, stability or certainty or downside protection. You know, if no one wants to buy digital fashion anymore, then the digital fashion creator is not going to have any income. So how do you think those risks Mitigated. Well, I think we've already lost that kind of stability anyway. Just being uh, dependent on an employment model, I think that a kind of mental model is gone. It's still there in, I guess, a lot of companies. That, uh, but yeah, just going forward, I don't think a stable nine to five for 10, 20 years, even five years is something that most people will be looking for. I guess the downside of that is that, you know, you need to have skills. Uh, what the metaverse brings you is that mm-hmm. it brings you an economic opportunity that is independent of your location. You, you do need a computer, you do need internet access, and you need the relevant skills to to have a seat on the table and start producing. And in the case of games like Axie Infinity, that skill bar is probably relatively low. I'm a gamer. I know how to progress and win games, which is a skill that a lot of people have but haven't realized it's valuable. But I think a lot of the higher value work will be more around creation rather than um, just participation, right? So I I have the ability to create things that uh, basically add to the value of the game rather than just being the uh, part of the player liquidity because in a way, being part of the player liquidity, you're fungible, right? right? uh, you're, unless you're one of the best players, you're an esports player. Um, you're basically earning at kind of roughly the same amount as everyone else. So you're kind of more prone to being disrupted income-wise. But if I can differentiate myself by being an artist, by being a good programmer that can create things in these worlds, I think yeah, that's where a lot of the economic opportunity will lie. Yeah, I, that to me is really exciting. Where players aren't just because to me it feels really concerning if the main way that you're making money is by generating some token that other people have to buy in order to get into the game. 
and other people are mostly getting into the game because they think they can make money, then there can be a very sharp fall-off effect if growth ever slows and the last generation of people who came in stop, they don't make money, then the, you know they'll quit the next generation. It could be a really, really instant kind of cliff. It's sort of like a multi-level marketing-y type thing. Whereas mm-hmm. if players are creating things in games that add value to the game itself, that's a totally different thing. And I think that's the reason why it feels weird. Like, oh, is playing a video game creating economic value? Well... I mean, if you're just doing it because you're having fun and like, yeah, you're, you're providing some liquidity or you're like the, the game developers have created a, an access gate that's like, we're basically giving the value of our marketing to other users, essentially, um, of acquiring new users, then like, that's cool and that's good. And that definitely helps in the early days, but it doesn't feel as sustainable to me as what you just talked about. So that's really exciting. Yeah, I think the current growth in Axie is like a reflexive growth loop where you're right, as long as new players are coming in to the system, then this works. But eventually people will need other reasons to stay. So I see that in the sense of like you're building a theme park. Now you're be- you've been drawn in. And what else can I do after that? What can I create after that? Or what can I sell to others? And that's where the sustainability will come from. I also want to transition and talk a little bit about the Leaping Corgi scholarship that is being set up right now. So, okay, yeah, how do I describe it? Essentially, what recently happened was I decided to sell my second ever NFT, and I wanted to donate the proceeds to some cause that would help. I I wanted to help the people that were most in need of help in the entire world. I didn't want to help people who like there's a lot of organizations out there that are you know helping people like mint nft art etc which i think is great but if they're already like thinking about nfts and like minting artwork they're probably not not like at the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder and so as i was thinking about like what should i donate the proceeds of this nft sale to and by the way the nft itself was a piece of artwork that was associated with my blog post about universal creative income i was talking to gabby about this nft and 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 we decided that we should establish a scholarship for yield guild so that more players could be onboarded and start playing axie infinity and start earning and so essentially the auction i think ended up netting us like $13,000 US. The second highest bidder also wanted to donate his full bid, which was $10,000. So we ended up raising $23,000 from a pair of two bidders, Richard and Jason. Shout out to Richard and Jason. Thank you guys. And in total, we're we're sponsoring 87 new scholars to start playing. and, And Richard and Jason chose the name of the scholarship. It's going to be called Leaping Corgi, the Leaping Corgi Scholarship. But yeah, Gabby, like, is the scholarship program something that you would like to do more of? Are there other ways that people can donate and be able to participate in Yield Guild? Yeah, so we, we have this program called a Sponsor a Scholar Program, and that's where uh, Leaping Corgi came in. And, you know, a lot of people make a lot of money in crypto, and then they think about, like, okay, how can I give back? And how does it work from here? You can donate to a charity, but a lot of people also like seeing just immediate results of like, where does my money actually go? 
So we established this program so that people could basically donate to us. We would use that to buy SLP. And that SLP is used directly to create axes that are used to give to people in our scholarship program. So you can see the direct impact where this $23,000, for example, translates to 87 axe themes. So that's 87 people at least that this donation will be helping. And the great thing is, as these people graduate from the program and buy their own axes, there's another batch of 87 people that that can help. So I think it's a, it's a real sustainable form of being able to help people get, get off their feet and have better economic outcomes. And yeah, it's something that can scale because the assets themselves are permanent. And as long as the game is alive, we can continue helping more people after that. So if you're out there listening and you would like to sponsor a scholarship through Yield Guild, I guess reach out to Gabby and we can get something set up and you can help onboard new players into the metaverse where they can start earning and start to jumpstart that positive growth loop. And this, I think this topic also segues nicely to how we initially met each other, um, which also segues into a topic that I would love to also talk to you about, which is NFTs. So side note, Gabby and I first met through an NFT auction, my first ever NFT auction. I think you were the first person to ever bid on my first ever NFT. So you, I think you were the opening bid and then you ended up being not I ended the, winner, up losing. the second highest. <laughs> yes, but what we really gained was a new friendship. <laughs> There can only be one winner of the NFT, but everyone uh-huh. everyone wins new friendships uh-huh. and new relationships. And, and so yeah. that's how that's how we met. Yeah. Exactly. I'd love to ask you more about this. How did you first get into NFTs and first get into collecting them? How do you decide which artists to support and to mm-hmm. what extent? So apart from what I've been doing at Yield Guild, my hobby had been uh, collecting crypto art. So I've been buying NFTs from artists, I would say, started in late 2019, uh, discovered artists like Josie Bellini, and then 2020 started ramping up NFT art collecting in a big way. And this is important to me because it comes from my background as a game developer, where it's kind of really hard to be an independent game developer and make a living. And with the artists that I work with, there are so many talented artists in the Philippines, for example. And most of the time, the way that they could make money was doing client work, doing commissions, a dollar rate that is basically good for people in the Philippines, but much lower than, you know, what hiring uh, an equivalent skill artist would be in America or in Europe, for example. And suddenly these artists who are a friend of mine, they get connected to crypto art. And now they're part of the kind of global art economy that doesn't really care what country you're from. It, it bases the economics of how much people would buy your NFT on how much they value them. And this is very meaningful to me. And that's why, that's how I got really involved in crypto art. I actually got a few of my artists' friends into crypto art, uh, artists like Shelly Soneha, Caroline D, and uh, they've done extremely well. And they basically made more money than they've ever seen in their lives via crypto art, because now people uh, could value their scale, their talent, and buy their NFTs 
like not really caring about what country they were from. And that was really powerful. And yeah, that's how I actually I, I got to bid on uh, on Lee's NFT. So as I was telling Nathan earlier, um, I got to read about Lee and her work through uh, through the Everything Bundle, as it was called then last year. And it was specifically that article about creator middle class that really struck me because from my work on the day job at Yale Guild and the the hobby that I have collecting crypto art, this really spoke uh, to me like in a in a very personal way because this was really what I was trying to create and that was why I was in crypto in the first place. So so these values really mattered to me and yeah, that's why I ended up bidding on your NFT. Yeah, that's really amazing. I think it's awesome. Okay, so after this NFT sale, there was a New York Times article about it. And the the headline of this article was, what are you getting when you buy a GIF for $25,000? Gabby, I'd love to get, I'd I'd love to hear your answer to that question. Like, what, what do you get when you purchase an NFT? Right. So this is something that a lot of people who don't, uh, buy, I guess, NFTs, they, they ask. And uh, what I've always told people is that when you buy from an artist, what, what you have is that direct personal connection with that artist that is just not the same from, I guess, buying from a gallery where the connection between the artist is abstracted away. Sure, there's still a crypto art platform like a Maker's Place or a Super Rare that you buy from. But oftentimes when I start supporting the work of an artist, I, I, I consider myself kind of a seed stage artist investor in the way that like I like discovering up and coming artists, mm-hmm. supporting them very early on, collecting a lot of their earlier works and then helping promote these artists so that they can widen their collector base and they basically discover larger collectors later on and then their works can sell for higher amounts. And when that happens, a lot of the secondary work or the earlier work gets sold for higher prices. And what's magical about crypto art is that there are royalties baked in, usually around 10%. So if you get a larger following, not only are your primary sales getting higher and then your older work, if it gets resold higher, you're getting like a 10% commission as royalties off them. So I think this is just an amazing system um, that works overall. And it also means that you're developing this connection with the artists that you're buying from. So so with a lot of the artists that I've decided to support, I, I kind of treat them as like my portfolio of artists that I like to work with, like from buying their work, sometimes offering emotional support, helping helping my friends figure out about crypto, to I have an art gallery in Decentraland and I display their works in, art, in these art galleries to kind of helping these artists find the larger collector base. So that's what I think about when I buy a piece of artwork. Yeah. It's not just like oh, here's a pretty picture and I buy it. Like I really want to find a connection with that artist and also help support them and their career and help them uh, basically gain a lot more distribution and recognition as artists. Yeah, it's like angel investing kind of. It's about the relationship and helping someone succeed and all this kind of stuff more so than it's just about owning a piece of property. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're just buying a pretty GIF, Yes, exactly. Right. Like um, everyone, anyone can download the GIF and put it on uh, their desktop. But through everything bundle, I I learned about Lee. We became friends and now I've met Nathan. So, yeah. And now we're here together. Okay. well, I think this is a great place to wrap it. I I think Gabby is one of those people who is I look to him as 
the indicator for what I should be paying attention to on the internet. And so if how he spends his time is any indication of how the rest of us will be spending our time in a few years, I think people should be playing, paying attention to play to earn games and NFTs and internet communities and unbundling work from employment and work that people can do from anywhere with just an internet connection. Thank you again, Gabby, for being with us today. Thank you. It's been amazing to chat. Thanks for having me.